Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk. Welcome to another edition of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss an episode. And thank you for listening. And as I tell you guys all the time, all the interviews you hear on this podcast originated on my Sirius XM radio show called Trunk Nation, which is heard live Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 Eastern time, nightly re-airs midnight Eastern, all of that on Faction Talk, Sirius XM channel 103. And you can listen, of course, anytime you want on demand. So if you can't listen when the show is on the radio, you can listen anytime you want on the app. All you got to do is go to the Sirius XM app, punch in Eddie Trunk, punch in Trunk Nation, Past couple weeks of uh, complete shows will load up and all the interviews are archived for you there as well. So a lot of content on the app on demand, including full shows. If you only listen to this podcast and you are in the U.S. or Canada, come on board and join us on Sirius XM. Get the full picture. Six live shows a week, including an extra one on Mondays on Hair Nation. Hope you come on board for that. And... To sweeten that deal a little bit, I've got a great offer for you. Three months of SiriusXM for free. Yep, you can sample the show for free and hear what the daily show sounds like if you're only listening to this podcast. No credit card required. All you got to do is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. All your information to sign up is there. Three months free. No credit card needed. And sample the uh, full service, including my show, Trunk Nation, on Faction Talk. Again, that's SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. No credit card needed. Three months of SiriusXM to try for free. This week on the podcast, an interview that originated on the radio show, like all of them, probably about uh, roughly two to three weeks ago. And it's with the one and only Geezer Butler. Now, we already recently had Tony Iommi on. And any time that I have a chance to 
interview uh, and uh, spend any time with really the architects of heavy music, as I call them, the founding father, the founding fathers, and in this case, that's Black Sabbath, it's always extremely special. And we had Tony on recently and brought that to you as a podcast a couple weeks ago. This week, it is Geezer Butler, another founding member of Black Sabbath, talking about his book, which is out now called Into the Void. It's an autobiography. It's fantastic. I was hoping to get Gies in studio, but he's been running around the world promoting the book. So we were lucky to get 30, 45 minutes with him on the phone. And that's what we're going to bring you talking about the book and some of the stories in it and Black Sabbath stuff in general. So you're going to love this. How can you not? If you're a fan of heavy music, it doesn't get bigger than members of Sabbath. If you missed Tony a couple weeks ago, go back and grab that. Geezer joining us this week on the Eddie Trunk podcast. Be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page for info and updates. Don't forget, I got a new YouTube show with my former That Metal Show partners, Don Jameson and Jim Florentine. We are back together doing a show called That Rocks on YouTube. All you got to do is go to YouTube, punch in That Rocks. It's totally free. There's about nine episodes you can get caught up on watching on demand. We do it live on Wednesdays at 7 Eastern. If you'd like to watch that way, again, won't cost you a penny to do so. Most recent guest yesterday was Sammy Hagar. We've had tons of great guests on there. Corey Taylor, Brett Michaels, David Coverdale. The list goes on and on and on. So just take a look and listen and check it out. That rocks. Subscribe on YouTube so you do not miss an episode. Again, totally free. Upcoming appearances... July 28th, I'll be in Houston at Rise Rooftop hosting Tom Kiefer and John Karabi. July 29th, I'm in Agora Hills, California at the Canyon Club hosting a show there with Chevy Metal, which will feature Taylor Hawkins' son Shane on drums. And that is a fundraiser and a charity event for a local animal shelter. That, I believe, is sold out. But the uh, show at Rise Rooftop for Kiefer on the 28th in Houston, tickets do remain. Be Be sure to follow on my social media for info and updates. Without further ado, let's bring to you this week, coming right up here on the podcast, my interview with Geezer Butler. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around with nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Home isn't just a place. It's a state of mind, like curling up in a comfy chair as you watch the world go by. Good afternoon. Which is why at Delta, our people do our best to make you feel at home long before you get there. Delta, keep climbing. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Geese, how are you, buddy? I'm very good, thank you, Edward. How are you? I'm good. Uh, where are you? You have been all over the place uh, plugging the book. I know you were in England and then back in the States. Uh, how's the run been going? It's been going great. Uh, I can't believe how many bloody interviews I've had to do for, for the book. Much more than any music I've ever done. Have you enjoyed it or are you like uh, over it at this point? Tell me honestly. I'm um, getting there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like talking about yourself too much, do you? No. How how has the reaction been to the book uh, now that it's been out for a week or two? Uh, what what's uh, what's the response been that you've been hearing? It's been good, uh, mainly. Um, it got to number three in the Sunday Times bestseller charts in England in the first week, so I was pleased about that. Um, yeah, it's been generally uh, positive. Have you done book signings anywhere, Geezer, or you don't want to do that or not going to do that? No, I did a book signing in London at uh, Waterstones in London. Um, that was really good. Do you plan or want to do any in the U.S.? Um, I don't think so, no. I mean, I might do. I'm not sure yet. Maybe when the paperback comes out or something. So, you know, anytime anybody writes a book like this, an autobiography, and I remember when you were on and, and sitting with me in Vegas a, a few months back, you kind of casually mentioned that you had a book coming, which we didn't know. And now, of course, it's out. I've read it. I absolutely loved it. Um, but when any, anybody writes a book about their story, there's often things that get put out there or people interpret wrong in the book or they get the wrong message or something's taken out of context. I know the book's only been out a couple of weeks, but is there anything that's come out from the book or that people have misread or misinterpreted that you've heard about out there? Um, no, not really, no. Uh, the only thing that people are surprised at is that I haven't spoken to the rest of the band since the last gig. So uh, I don't know why they think that I'm, I'll be calling them up every week after being on the road with them for 50 years. So that's about the only thing. Yeah, I don't think I think fans have this vision that a band, even when you're with together and for 50, 60 years, that you're always going to be together. <laughs> you like always have dinner together three times a week. It's really not like that. Everybody, even on the road, everybody kind of goes their own directions before and after the gig, right? Well, you find it out then. Uh, and I was saying that I think fans have this illusion that everybody, the bands are together all the time, but even when you're on the road, before and after a gig, everybody kind of goes their own directions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you drive each other nuts. Um, you know, you're together all the time. It's good to have your own lives once, once you've finished uh, touring. So there's a few things I want to ask you about. I know we don't have a lot of time today, but there's a few things I want to ask you about in the book that I made some notes about after I read it. And one of the things that jumped out at me early on was, you know, Sabbath are often viewed as the band that invented heavy metal. And you say in the book that all of metal is built on a misunderstanding and that the image and the message was not how it was perceived. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What was the misunderstanding that you think most people had? That we were Satanists and loved black magic and all that crap. But uh, in fact, from the first song we ever wrote, it was a 
which was Black Sabbath, was a warning against getting involved with the occult and uh, black magic and Satanism and all that kind of stuff. And um, all the the other songs are mainly uh, semi-political, against wars and politicians and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you talk about in the book early on as a kid in your childhood growing up that you had actually seen what you described as an orb. Um, can you? Do, what do you attribute that to? I mean, do you do you believe that was some sort of, uh, you know, sign of some sort? I mean, uh, has that ever happened to you since? No, it hasn't happened since. It was when I was a little kid, and um, I woke up and there was this like orb rotating above my head. And it sort of showed uh, people on the stage and with long hair and everything. And of course, I didn't know what the hell it was. I thought it was like angels or something. And um, it sort of disappeared up the bedroom chimney. And I was sort of a bit bewildered at what it was. And um, yeah, it was a really strange experience. But you're saying that you saw it showed people playing in a band. So do you think it was? Do you view it as maybe being like somewhat of a a a a, a, a mirror into what you were going to ultimately end up doing since you were a little kid when you saw it? Yeah, to me it was a premonition. It really was. But when I talk about it, people think I'm setting mental. But um, that's what it was—a premonition of what I was going to do later in life. Well, I think the initial thing, if you told that story to somebody, would be like, oh, well, Sabbath did a lot of drugs back then. But <laughs> this was before you did not, drugs. You were a kid. Not when I was six years old. Right, exactly. Um, you, you say that to this day, Ozzy still hates the term heavy metal. How do you feel about it? Uh, I've got used to it. Uh, it's just a, a term like any other, you know, people classic, try and classify all kinds of music try and put it in a bag or whatever, and they come up with all these different uh, things to call it. And I think they called us heavy metal to this because we were a lot heavier than most hard rock bands that were around at the time. So we, we were, we'd done one step heavier than anybody else. And so they couldn't call it heavy rock, they called it heavy metal. And did that the, also the fact that you guys being from Birmingham and I've, I mean, I've been to Birmingham. I've interviewed you there actually years ago. That, that's known for being a, a steel city, right. With like industrial steel. So that the yeah. terminology came out of there, right. The steel plants. Yeah. It was the first uh, place to have factories. Birmingham was the very first place to have factories in the world. And it was like part of the industrial revolution. So the whole thing, that's where all the cars were made and all the ammunition and tanks and everything. Spitfires during World War II were made. Um, it's always been an industrial part of uh, England. And I think that translated into the type of music that we wanted to play. You know what else was amazing in reading the book is is when you talk about that first record, which was made on on so quickly on such a shoestring budget that to to everyone's surprise it became a really big record really quickly, and uh, not to say you didn't put your work in before leading into that record because that's documented in the book, but what I found astonishing is and you say in the book that that first album was selling millions, 
and you guys were still seeing no money and no publishing to the point that you would be you would steal stuff out of the dressing rooms to bring back to your homes just so you could have stuff in the house. I mean, did you as kids? I know you were super young at that time, but did you say to yourself, "Hey, you know, where's our where's our money? You know, what's going on here?" Did you confront people at that time? Yeah, eventually. I mean, when the first, when the album first came out, it was given absolutely no chance by anybody, and the critics hated it. So we were still, uh, and uh, we'd still got like six months, eight months worth of bookings for like twenty dollars a night and stuff like that. And we had to, uh, we had to do them, otherwise they'd sue us. So uh, the first album, we didn't know anything about publishing or record royalties or anything like that. And um, you don't even think about that. All we wanted to do was get our music out and get a record contract. We didn't care how much it was for or whether we were going to get paid as long as we could be on the road for for the rest of our lives and do music. And um, it wasn't until about a year after when the album was like selling millions that uh, we started thinking, oh, people were telling us, well, how much royalties are you getting? And we are like, uh, what's royalties? We didn't know anything about the business side of it. And it wasn't until much later when we were asking um, various management at the time where our accounts were and we weren't getting these accounts we realized then that um and we were selling tons of tours out everywhere selling millions of albums and we still had relatively not much money in the bank so eventually we found out that we uh, weren't getting what we we're supposed to be getting yeah and that that storyline goes through the book as well, the ups and downs and the managers coming in and out and sorting through all of that. The other thing that in the book, Geezer, that most people know, of course, is that you wrote the bulk of the lyrics in Black Sabbath with the original band with Ozzy. And, you know, when you were on with me last, when you were at my my place in Vegas and we hung out and talked for a bit, I'd asked you what Iron Man was about. And you told me at that time, which surprised a lot of people, that the song was actually about Jesus. Um, your lyrics over the years, I think, you know, I mean, I love a lot of your lyrics, but I think some of them have been misunderstood or people don't really know exactly what you were writing about. One of the things that I was, I found interesting was what fairies wear boots is about, which you talk about in the book. Can you, uh, share that with the audience? Well, we'd, uh, we'd done this gig in, um, in the seaside place in England and as usual, I was the one that always went to collect the money from the promoter. And I went to the promoter and he says, oh, I've already sent your money to your management. And this was like, it kept happening. It was like, oh, no, not again. We, got, we haven't we just about got enough money to get home in the car. And um, so I went out. Obviously, we didn't have cell phones back in 1970. So there was a phone box right outside the gig. And I went out to call the manager out and go nuts at him about, you know, not taking our money yet again. And I, I went into this phone box, and as I was, as I picked up the phone, all these skinheads surrounded the phone box, and they're all going, Greaser, Greaser, we're going to kill him, we're going to kill him. And I'm like, oh, no. And um, so I pretended to be talking on the phone, and then uh, just pushed the phone box door open and rushed back into the gig uh, at top speed. And I said, and Tony says, uh, Tony was packing up the equipment at the time, and he went, what's the matter? What's the matter with you? 
people says, well, skinheads tried to get me outside. And, of course, Tony is that. And he's going, come on, let's go and get them. And um, <laughs> Ozzy picked up this claw hammer. Uh, the roadie picked up the uh, mic stand. And we went out and beat hell out of these skinheads. And they all, they, they ran off going, come on, lads, let's go and get reinforcements. And we jumped in our car and, leg, and drove back to Birmingham. And uh, so when we were doing Paranoid, um, we were rehearsing a couple of days later after the gig and Ozzy came up with the lyrics for Fairies Wear Boots because back then Skinhead used to wear these great big Doc Martins that came right up to the knees practically. And that's the way he came out with it. So Ozzy actually wrote, you mentioned in the book, there were a couple times where Ozzy actually wrote lyrics, not a lot, but on a few songs. And that's actually one of the songs that he actually wrote the lyrics to. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote that and he wrote the lyrics to Black Sabbath and Wicked World. And that was it. You, you talk about obviously the other three guys, you, you, you know, I love the fact that you, and I'm not going to have all the time to go through this book with you, and maybe somewhere down the line we can do that because there's so much in it, but the book goes beyond, obviously, the original lineup of the band, and you talk about all the different eras that you were a part of and, and all sorts of stuff, but talking, staying with the original band, I mean, you talk about each person's, any band, everybody sort of assumes a role or an identity, and in Sabbath, it came across that Tony was very much the leader of the band. Ozzy was like the the lunatic. I mean, my gosh, the shit that Ozzy did is just <laughs> geezer. I mean, I was like, I, I mean, I mean, from I mean, he literally was like an animal back then, like pissing and shitting on everything. Like it, it's absolutely crazy that this guy got away with the stuff that he got away with back then. Yeah, there's no way we'd get away with it these days, that's for sure. But Ozzy used to have me in stitches every day, and uh, I'd be, he'd always like do stuff to, to make me laugh. And even at gigs when we were on stage, he'd be pulling these faces and everything, trying to make me double up laughing. Even on the last tour, he was doing it. So he's <laughs> he always tried to do to top himself with with the last thing that he did, and always some, something more outrageous than before. And it's just, just his 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 humour, and he used to uh, really uh, amuse me the things he did. But the guy who took the brunt of the abuse, it seems like, and the guy who was like the fall guy for the most part in the band, would be Bill Ward. Do I have that right? Given what you wrote about, yeah, he was Bill's really, really an easygoing bloke. You know, he, he puts up with anything, and. Um, you have to do something really bad to get Bill's temper off. And he was really an easygoing man. He's a really good bloke, Bill. But the thing, so there's two things about Bill in the book. One is that you almost, you, you guys almost killed him on more than one occasion because Tony spray painted Bill and almost killed him. What, what was that about? Well, I think we'd seen, he'd totally seen this James Bond film, and um, it was the one where, where the woman's all painted in gold. I think it was Goldfinger, the film. And um, yeah. in it, the, the actress in it is paint, painted entirely in gold paint. 
So I think uh, we were all in the house in Bel Air doing um, I think Sabbath Bloody Sabbath or Volume 4, I can't remember which one it was. And Tony just got this idea that um, you could spray Bill Gold, same as the James Bond thing. And of course, Bill being Bill, he let him do it. And then um, Bill started going into convulsions because the paint went into all his pores, so his, his skin couldn't breathe. And uh, we had to get the paramedics in to help him. Geezer, there's a part in the book about you guys messing with Bill that I literally laughed out loud when I read because you, there's a point, and I don't know which member of the band it was, you or Tony wanted to set Bill on fire. And he said no, and then literally came back a little later and said, okay, Tone, you can set me on fire now. Yeah, Talk about Tony easy going. Tony was always setting fire to Bill's beard because Bill would grow his beard. And when it got long enough, Tony would come up and light it. And um, so this time, I think we were mixing Heaven and Hell, the album in London. And uh, Tony said to Bill, uh, Bill says, okay, I'm going home now. I've finished everything here. And Tony says, oh, just before you go, can I set you on fire? <laughs> and, and Bill says, no, don't be so stupid. I'm just, I'm just going home. So Bill left the building. And a couple of minutes later, he came back in. He went, okay, you can set me on fire before I leave. <laughs> and Tony gets all this uh, liquid um, flammable stuff that's used to clean up the, uh, the mixing board. And sprays it all on Bill and throws the matter on him. And Bill goes up like a bloody bonfire. So he's rolling around on the floor trying to put the flames out. And we're, <laughs> we're throwing newspapers on top of him, trying to put it out. There's nothing else in the studio. And um, eventually he's rolling all over the floor and everything. The flames uh, went out. But his trousers melted into his leg. His trousers and socks had melted into his leg. So um, his brother whisked Bill off to the nearest hospital. Um, they, they said at the time he might have to have his leg amputated. And um, so we got home and Bill's mum called me up at about four o'clock in the morning. You silly bastard. What have you done to Bill? I'm going, it wasn't me. It wasn't nothing to do with me. And she went, who did it then? And I said, well, I can't tell you. I can't tell you that. So she went, it was that bloody Iomi, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so she calls Tony up and goes nuts at him. And um, luckily, Bill has still got his leg. I mean, the idea of Bill, like, 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 it's so insane to say, let me light you on fire. And of course, Bill rationally says no. But the idea of Bill walking back in and saying, okay, Tony, you can set me on fire now. And voluntarily having that done it just blows my mind beyond. And then, of course, you're using paper, which, of course, is flammable to put out a guy that's on fire. I mean, it's just it's 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 so. It, and the other thing, like talking about the songs, is that NIB, which you say in the book, everybody always made up that it stood for Nativity in Black, which it does not. NIB is actually the abbreviation for Bill's beard, right? Yeah, because he used to have this beard that looked like a pen nib. It was really pointy at the end. And um, we used to call him Nibby. That was his nickname, Nibby, because uh, like his beard looked like a pen nib. So when, when I wrote the lyrics for NIB, which was about 
Satan falling in love. It's like tongue-in-cheek lyrics. And I thought, what the hell can I call this? And Bill was in the room. And I went, I'll just call it after Bill's beard. So I called it NIB. <laughs> you know, there, there's so much Aussie stuff in here about Aussie doing insane stuff. Um, when you meet with your manager who was ripping you off and Aussie pissed in his liquor bottle so that when he sat down and poured a drink while he was talking to you, he was basically drinking his own piss, right? Yeah, the manager was drinking Ozzy's piss. Ozzy's piss, manager, right. It's Ozzy's piss, right. He got this, uh, manager got this, like, really expensive bottle of brandy. He had all these incredibly expensive um, alcoholic drinks in his, uh, in his office. And he used to, like, display them as if they were, like, I don't know, the Mona Lisa or something. So he went out for a, a piss while, it, while he was... Uh, lying, lying to us about why we haven't got any money. And um, while he was out, Ozzy picked up his most expensive brandy bottle and pissed in it. So he came back and we, we were leaving. He went, well, just before you go, let's have a drink. And we went, oh, oh no, thanks. So he poured <laughs> his brandy and drank it. And we were like dying to laugh, but we couldn't. Did he react to it tasting differently? Do you remember? No, because it was brandy. I suppose the brandy taste that overshadowed Ozzy's whittle. <laughs> Does it amaze you, Geezer, that all four original members of Sabbath, with all of this insanity that went on before and since, are all still alive on in twenty twenty three? Is in, is this is that is because reading this book just it was I was amazed amazed you all made it out of the seventies. I know, yeah, I know. It's, it's, I don't know why, but uh, yeah, we've all survived so far. Yeah, it's it's truly remarkable. And then, of course, you know, you get into some of the later eras of Sabbath. You talk about around the period of Never Say Die, which, of course, was a rough time for the band, that and Technical Ecstasy, that uh, during Never Say Die, which I didn't know, and I don't know if a lot of fans knew, you were actually fired from Sabbath and then rehired. And at that time, Ozzy was already talking about starting a solo career, right? Yeah, we'd done this. Um, we did a photo uh to call a photo call thing up in somewhere. And Ozzy turned up with the Blizzard of Oz t-shirt on. And then, oh, what's that? He says, that, that's, if, I'm, if I get a band together, that's what I'm going to call them, the Blizzard of Oz. And, oh. and then, because um, things weren't going great in the back, we, nobody had any money. We'd been sued to death by the uh, everybody. And the band was at a really, really low point. And... I was sort of losing interest because I was sick of arguing with the manager and there was no money coming in or anything. I was seriously losing interest. And I was playing Ozzy some of the songs that I wrote, which he liked, and we were thinking about maybe doing something away from Sabbath, just the two of us with other people. And um, the next thing I know, Bill Ward comes to the house and goes, uh, hello, geez, I've got something to tell you. And I oh, wow. Well. He said, you're fired. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. And, um, but it was it was almost a relief because it was like it was just chaos at the time. We were in really bad straits. Uh, we got rid of the manager. We had to pay the manager off a million dollars, which is a ridiculous amount back then. And um, I was sort of relieved. And then 
I took a couple of weeks off, just doing nothing. And then the next thing I know, somebody calls me up and says, oh, rehearsal start tomorrow. And I went, what? I thought I was fired. And they went, what do you mean fired? Bill told me I was fired. And nobody would admit to admit, nobody would admit that they'd fired me. So I went back down and just carried on as normal. Oh, amazing. And you know, I just, Tony Iomi was on this show with me last week. He was on promoting, I had him come on, uh, we talked about the Live Evil remix, which just came out for its 40th anniversary. Have you heard it? I have not, because I've had a, uh, I had a, an ear infection for the last two months. It just got over it now. And I couldn't hear the bass properly. So now that, now that the infection's gone, I'm going to listen to it properly. So Tony and I last week talked a lot about that period and that record and everything, which, of course, there was a lot of talk at that time that Ronnie left the band over disagreements with the mix of that album. And now, as we talked about with Tony last week, it's just come out in a remix. And I know that there was, and Tony said the whole thing may have been a big misunderstanding back then, but in your book, you talk about, well, you you say that you used to always think that the only true version of Sabbath was the original and then that changed when Ronnie came back in for the third time. But the other thing in the book is that um, you talk about uh, Ronnie actually left the band and it was more a dispute over money and him wanting a piece of the Aussie catalog. Do I have that right? He wanted to, uh, he thought that he should get something for singing the Aussie era songs. And um, we totally disagreed. But at the time, he was, he'd already negotiated a solo deal with Warner Brothers, which we didn't know anything about. And um, when we found that out, we, you know, we knew that the band was uh, going south. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, I, I've always had a major issue that Ronnie was not included with you guys, and to a degree, Vinny, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you reference that, too, when you say in the book, that's just something that Sharon was not going to let happen. Did you have a conversation at that time about that? Because since Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, bands have been able to, you know, push that issue and they'll go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and say, hey, look, you've got to make this right. Around that time, was there any conversation about it or was it just a, a, something that you knew was not going to happen? I knew it wasn't going to happen because it was because the nomination was for the original lineup. So, uh, you know, it was just, it's a shame that the Ronnie era was never uh, acknowledged at the Hall of Fame, but I'm not a big Hall of Fame admirer anyway. I think it's a lot of crap. Uh, it'd be okay if they gave you a million dollars each or something when you got nominated, but uh, it's just nothing. It's just, you know, it didn't do, it didn't bring anything to your life. Right. And then there's also an interesting stuff in the book about your peer when you talk about the the name where Tony had the name and then there was a lawsuit between Sharon and Tony uh, about the name and then Tony kind of made a deal with Sharon. Can you talk a little bit about that and and recap that from what for the audience that was in the book? Um, yeah, I always thought uh, that if the original bands ever got back together, then the 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 band, the name would revert to all four of us. But um, Tony didn't see it like that. And he thought that he should alone have the Black Sabbath name. And whatever happened between them, eventually, I think Sharon sued him for the, the, 
name and got Ozzy part of the deal. Yeah, well, and, and there's also a great stuff in here about the Born Again record, which uh, Tony told me last week the tapes have been found and that album might be getting a remix, but Ian, Ian Gillen living in a tent outside of the studio. <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's remarkable stories in here. And, uh, you know, I, I know I got to let you go, Geese, but one one final question, I want to get your thoughts on this. I had talked to, when I had Tony on last week, I told him that, there was a big rumor that this power trip festival that's coming up was going to be a Sabbath date and not an Aussie solo date. And Tony said last week on this show that he, that he was approached about doing it and opted out because of concerns about Ozzy's ability to do it. And he did not know Ozzy would then take it as a solo date. Did that offer also get on your radar and would you have entertained playing a Sabbath again there? Oh, I didn't know anything about that. I've, I've never heard what it is or anything else. Um, no, I just I can't say yes or no if I'd have done it because I don't know what it is. Well, it's a big festival coming up with Metallica and all these bands in Southern California. And Ozzy is announced, it's his only show that he's announced to be playing. And he's targeting trying to get on stage to do it. But... Tony said that he didn't know if the offer got to you or Bill, but he said that no. it, everyone said it was going to be Sabbath, and then it ended up just becoming an Aussie solo date because Tony said, I think it, it died with Tony because he said he wouldn't be comfortable doing it because of Ozzy's, you know, what Ozzy's dealing with, and he didn't think Ozzy could get through it. He didn't say anything to me about it. So, uh, you know, if he just then that's it. It's the end. So you're retired, though. You 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 don't have an interest in playing anymore, right? No, I mean maybe a one-off here and in, in there, but uh, that that would be it for me. Do you think there should be a Sabbath? Would you like to see a Sabbath biopic or official documentary? Brian May was on with me earlier this week. We talked about Bohemian Rhapsody. It was so big. I would think Sabbath would be a great uh, candidate for something like that. Any interest in seeing something like that happen for Sabbath? Yeah, as long as it's my book that it's based on. <laughs> oh, yeah, talking about my book. Did you look at the pictures in it? No, because I don't have an actual copy of it. They sent me just the PDF, so I've not seen the photos. I, I need to get the actual copy. Because, remember, before when I was talking to you and you were going on about the, the, uh, the devil horn sign? Yes. And you said that it was Ronnie came up with it. Well, there's a picture in the book of me in 1968, the first Sabbath photograph with me doing the devil horn sign. You sent me that photo at that time. Aren't you out on a patio or a deck or something, a balcony? That was 1970, that one. No, but this is from 1968. Yes, I remember Sabbath that. Photo. There was great controversy about that, and you talk about that in the book, that Ronnie was looking for something to do because Ozzy always did the peace sign, and you had been doing that, and you gave it to him, and then he went ahead and made it his own thing. Yeah, Ronnie made it famous. But yes, you have docu so you have documentation in the book of you in 68 doing it. Yes, and you can get the book and have a look at it.
All right. Well, I definitely got to get a physical copy of the book. I have not seen it yet, but I've only read the text. Um, Geez, I know I got to let you go. I know you're a busy guy with a lot of press. I hope we can sit down and do more in person when you get a chance. And uh, best to the family. And I'm glad you're feeling better. And thank you for the time. Are you still in Vegas? I was supposed to be there right now, but there's all kinds of flight drama on the East Coast, and I couldn't get out last night. My flight was canceled. So I'm still in New oh, Jersey. Right. I hope to get... I hope to get to Vegas tomorrow. Okay, well, when, when you're in Vegas, we'll have to get together. I would love to do that. We'll go for some vegan food. Yes, yes. <laughs> Crossroads on you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. Okay, cheers, Eddie. Take care, Geese. Thanks for the time. I hope to see you soon, buddy. Okay, all the best. You too. Bye-bye. Well, big thanks to Geezer Butler. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Again, we uh, appreciate uh, Geezer joining us and remind you to join me every Thursday for another new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast and another news-making interview. And like I said, listen every day on Sirius XM, Channel 103, Faction Talk. That's where all of this comes from. Live daily, 3 to 5 Eastern, anytime on the Sirius XM app. And now... You can get three months free of SiriusXM if you are not already a subscriber. You can sample the show. You can listen. It won't even require a credit card to do so. All you got to do is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk and sign up for three free months of trial of SiriusXM and listen to Trunk Nation every day on 103. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. I will catch you guys again next Thursday for another all new episode, or if you're in the US or Canada and you have Sirius XM tomorrow, each and every weekday. Take care, everybody, at Eddie Trunk on social media, and uh, catch you soon. Home isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Like curling up in a comfy chair while it's cold outside, with a warm drink, or maybe even a wine in hand. As you watch the world go by outside your window, Mmm, short rib. Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking. Which is why at Delta, our people do our best to make you feel at home. Refill? Long before you get there. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.